everyone. I'm Mark Foley, and this is The Journey. So just for the record, I want you to know I reject the notion of impossible. Okay, I'll qualify that slightly. As a believer and a Christ follower on his terms, I reject the notion of impossible. What I'm going to tell you today is a story about impossible things becoming possible. It'll be in three parts. The first is called A Search for a Future. The second part is A Lesson in Faith. And the third is a practical experience of what happens when we do-it-yourself types, lay down our tools, and get out of the way of God. Transformational ideas don't emerge from the mind fully formed. In my experience, they tend to come in pieces, driven by passion and guided by worthy objectives. In the case of what I'm going to describe, the passion and the objective both rest in God. Under His direction, those bits and pieces gather and expand into a perfect symphony of experience, thought, faith, and action. And I've come to the point I believe you can live that way with that kind of symphony orchestrated in your life. That symphony became a continuing 10-year strategy of exponential influence that I reflect upon with absolute wonder and gratitude. The story involves me, but it's not about me. I was one of a group of people who watched it happen. But from my perspective, it was something far beyond what I could even imagine. It's a story about leadership. It's a story about a college about a city, and about a nation relearning what it means to honor God. For that reason alone, it's important to tell this story. But I also tell the story because now, 10 years later, a new core of leaders is emerging in our communities. And I think it's an important story to hear. For my part, I was simply searching for the next steps for the college where I'd served as president for a number of years. In the process... I experienced what happens when God gives assignments to His people. Over the period of a year, a decade ago, God showed a group of men and women in Mobile, Alabama, how He will work when people are willing to hear His voice and act responsively upon what He says. So here's the first part. It's about leadership and a search for a future. In the spring of 2009, I conducted an assessment for the University of Mobile for our Board of Trustees. Through that process, it became very clear that we had accomplished the goals toward which we had been working for the previous five years. Now, we'd not done it perfectly, but we had done about all we were going to be able to do. I also realized that if you had asked me what was next for that university, I didn't know the answer. And it's my conviction that a leader should always be able to identify a desired future for the organization that he or she leads and be able to clearly articulate that future in a way that leads to a plan that will achieve it. I also believe that if a leader is unable to identify such a future, that leader should get out of the way in favor of someone who can. So I was left with two choices. Either find out what the future was or start packing. But since I was not ready to leave just yet, and believing there was something to be discovered, I chose the first option. At that point, I had been present for 12 years, and I was nearing my 60th birthday. 
Though long from being finished, it was clear that I was moving into the last phase of my professional career. So in addition to identifying the future for the university, I needed to discover and implement an end strategy that included a plan to move the university through the search for my successor and to the extent possible, preserve the culture that we had worked so hard to achieve. So began a six-month process involving a great deal of prayer, of study, of reading, and consultation with trusted friends about what would come next for the institution I was charged to lead. As so often happens when you take time to stop and listen, God spoke. One morning during that period, I was reading in the Gospel of Mark in the 10th chapter. It's a place in the Scripture to which I like to go from time to time because it is basically a day in the life of Christ and one of the last days of His life. By that time in His experience, Jesus was pouring Himself into the lives of His men on a daily and hourly basis. So it is a particularly rich piece of Scripture. The chapter ends with a story of Jesus' encounter with a blind man named Bartimaeus. Jesus was walking through the bustling town of Jericho on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples, and around him was an entourage of people just because they were interested in the kind of things he was doing and saying. As he moved through the town, Bartimaeus began shouting at Jesus, Hey, have mercy on me! Have mercy on me. Now, you'll understand that in that day and age, the town blind guy was not necessarily the favored citizen of the community. And judging from the story, there must have been a keep the blind beggar quiet committee that jumped into action when Bartimaeus started yelling, quiet down, man, this is an important guy. You're embarrassing the town. But the only voice to which Jesus gave attention in those moments, was that of Bartimaeus. Have him come over here, Jesus said. And so it was that the lowest-ranking citizen of Jericho was ushered into the presence of the Creator of the universe. Then came the question. Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Now you know that a blind man... At the end of winter in a small Middle Eastern town in the first century is going to have a long need list. Whatever it was, clothes, food, family, friends, he most definitely had needs. But he didn't ask for anything that might have been reasonably possible. He asked for that which was most impossible. He said, I want to see. And without hesitation, Jesus said, Your faith has healed you. And the man walked away, sighted. Now, I've read that story a hundred times. But on that day, as I read the part in which Jesus asked Bartimaeus, What do you want me to do for you? Something very unusual happened. It was as if the story stopped, and I was ushered into the presence of Jesus. I was strongly and unmistakably impressed that Jesus was asking me, Mark, what do you want me to do for you? Now that is a significant question. 
And it was real, so real that I remember being startled at the experience. And the first thing that came to my mind was, Foley, don't mess up this answer. I began to sort through my own need list. At that time, I was president of a small college in the middle of a recession. Trust me, we had a need list. And I was thinking about needs at the university and those in other areas of life and our family and among friends and other places. But after about 20 minutes of reflection, I returned to the question. And I realized that my answer had to be the same as that of Bartimaeus. I want to see, not physical sight, but I wanted spiritual sight, spiritual understanding. I was on a search for the future of an institution, and I wanted to be able to see things through God's eyes. I wanted to be able to see not only the school, but my wife, my family, my colleagues, my friends, my community, my nation through God's eyes. And in that unique moment, in the presence of God, I said so. Now, there were no bells and whistles, no angels hovering, no trumpets sounding. It was just a moment that came, and it ended. But it was a real moment. Over the many days afterwards, as I continued to reflect upon that very unique experience, I began to see. At least it was a type of seeing. I became acutely aware of a deepening desire for the health of our city and for the health of our nation. And the thought began to form in a very clear manner that America should and could return to a point of honoring God. Could it be, I began to wonder, that God would use a small college in Mobile to bring meaningful change to the spiritual and cultural condition of our city and of our country. Wow. Here's the second part of the story. This part is about leadership and faith. Throughout my term as a college president, I accepted many hundreds of invitations to speak, usually in churches on Sunday mornings or evenings. On one of those occasions, during the period of my exploration of the school's future, I had spoken in a church about the importance of faith in the life of a leader. As I was preparing to leave the church, a man approached me and asked, Do you know Manly Beasley? Well, I did know of Manly Beasley. He was a regional evangelist in Texas and Louisiana who had come to my attention in the late 80s and the early 90s. I'd heard him speak a time or two, and I was aware that Reverend Beasley had been chronically ill over a number of years and that he'd passed away. I'm his cousin, the man said, and I want to send you a copy of his biography. I expressed appreciation for his kindness, for the offer, and then continued on my way with no more thought of the exchange. But I was pleased when the book arrived four days later. As I leafed through it, I remember thinking, Man, there is no way that I'll get to read this thing anytime soon. So I placed the book on that stack of well-intentioned reading on the corner of my desk and continued my quest for the university's future, a future that was more and more focused upon the seemingly impossible objective of spiritual and cultural transformation of the nation. 
but I could not get that book out of my mind. It was like it contained a spiritual magnet that kept drawing my attention. As I prepared to leave on one of those multi-legged flights that were occasionally part of the work, I grabbed the book and stuffed it in my briefcase. As the aircraft was backing away from the gate, I opened it, and I never put it down. I don't remember ever being so captivated by a story. But it wasn't the story of Beasley's life that got to me. It was his concept of faith. Beasley often made this statement. Faith is believing something is so when it is not so in order for it to be so because God says it is so. You might need to hear that again. Here we go one more time. Faith is believing something is so when it is not so in order for it to be so because God says it is so. Here's another Beasley quotable quote. Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as the present and the invisible as visible. Faith is dependence upon God, and this God-dependence only begins when self-dependence ends. I'd never thought about faith in such radical terms. I began to view the seemingly impossible concepts of the college's future that were being introduced to my thinking through Beasley's radical faith concepts. The minister's words were becoming my own. Beasley wrote, God was waiting on me to act on His revealed truth because faith is acting on the Word of God. I must not only believe that He can meet a need, I must not only want Him to meet a need, I must begin to act as though the need has been met. Even though I might not be able to see it, or feel it, or smell it, or taste it, or hear it, I must begin acting as if it is so, whether it is so or not, in order for it to be so. Because with God, having planted it in my mind and in my thought, it already is so. The seedling of ideas that would become part of a 10-year strategy had been planted. The notion of a city or a nation returning its attention to the things of God is a nice thought. But the idea that a small independent college in North Mobile, Alabama could take a leading role in that return, well, some would say that borders on irresponsible babbling. And now I was being challenged by God through the record of Manly Beasley's life to act as if that idea was reality. This journey was becoming real interesting. Well, this is a good place to break, but there's a lot more to this story. So pick up the next segment and I'll tell you the rest. Thanks for checking in. I'll see you next time on The Journey.